Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the 19th class of our 32 class structured study of jhana meditation. Um, <clears throat> and before we begin, uh, Sammy, you are taking the Truth of Happiness course. Um, where About where are you in the course? Chapter 5. Ah, so you just passed the, the chapter on the Truth of Happiness and you're in the middle of the Eightfold Path. So it's just, um, it's a good timing for you. Um, so this sutta is the Sakavabhanga Sutta. It's the Buddha's analysis of um, the Four Noble Truths. Um, and it's positioned in our study um, where it is following uh, three classes on the Aryapariyasana Sutta, the Sutta on uh, the importance of noble searches and knowing what an ignoble and a noble search is, meaning... Um, an ignoble search resolves itself in something uh, that we imagine or speculate on, usually in a non-physical realm, or um, falling back into the asceticism that Siddhartha abandoned, just um, severe uh, and extreme physical practices, such as um, the one practice that I was involved with for eight minutes was 108,000 bows, um, again, leading to the beginning of Dharma practice. And there's a lot of those kind of examples out there. Um, another would be um, using meditation alone, which is the prevalent form of modern Buddhism, is sit for in some kind of method uh, with the hope to be a good person uh, and you're kind of good to go. And the problem with that is that most of us, including yours truly, didn't know how to be a good person 100% of the time. And the times that I failed were the times that I fell into deep self-loathing. And I didn't understand why I failed and how to get out of it. Uh, these are the same things that, that concern young Siddhartha. And it wasn't and he, until he figured this out, as Ram so uh, eloquently described in uh, Tuesday's class on the Nagara Sutta, uh, get that the noble search takes place within um, the environment and scenario of dukkha arising and passing away. And of course it must, because the whole point of the Dhamma is to understand that dukkha arising and passing away. And so a practice that is designed to understand that must have a vehicle to get you there. And that vehicle is jhana meditation. And again, the Buddha taught jhana meditation for this sole purpose, to deepen concentration so that we can be present for our own understanding of dukkha. He didn't teach it for any other reason. He didn't teach it for revelatory purposes, meaning uh, in meditation, I should always be looking for answers to my uh, to the, the secrets that I'm seeking or uh, to transport myself into non-physical realm. All of those are distraction, aren't they? So jhana meditation is used for deepening concentration. As we deepen our concentration, we can come to a profound understanding of Four Noble Truths, the entire purpose of the Buddhist dispensation. He didn't teach an eightfold path for any other purpose except to understand these four basic truths, beginning with the, the simple statement of there is suffering. The first noble truth that an awakened human being taught us, the thing that he thought 
he thought was most important for other human beings to understand was that dukkha occurs as a consequence of having a human life. Immediately, the Buddha is saying, don't take anything personal because it's not. That one statement describes the impersonality of all human life. Dukkha occurs. It has nothing to do with me. And I can grasp after or grasp away from things that I think are hurtful to me or disappointing. But all that I'm doing is setting myself up for a life of grasping after disappointment. Or I can grasp after or rest in understanding. And then each and every moment is rewarding. Why? Simply because I'm present for it. Simply because I understand this is the purpose of having a human life for what I'm doing in this moment. I can see where I'm looking at his watch, I think. <laughs> and rightly so. I think that's Ron picked up a good way of just saying, get on with it, get on with it. Right? <laughs> Thank you, Ron. The Sakavabhanga Sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying at the deer park in Isipatana. He addressed those gathered. Friends, it was here that I set in motion the unexcelled wheel of Dhamma. The only time the wheel of Dhamma was set in motion. Again, just to make the point that in many modern traditions, they insist that there was three settings of the wheel in motion. The other two, and actually the initial one, is all rooted in speculation and imaginary realms. It simply didn't happen according to Siddhartha. Then he says, My Dhamma cannot be corrupted by any Brahmin, Deva, Mara, Brahmin, or anyone in the entire world. He said, no matter how hard we have tried, even during the Buddhist time, there was insistence that his Dhamma be different. But no one has been able to corrupt it. They've tried. We've created very, very intricate system and called, and called them all the Buddhist teaching, when none of them were. And yet the Buddhist prediction from 2,600 years ago is still accurate because we are practicing an uncorrupted Dhamma. And then he says, no one can corrupt the revelation, the declaration, the description, the structure, the structure, the Eightfold Path, the explanation and the clear and direct teaching of Four Noble Truths. The noble truth of stress and suffering is the first noble truth. The second noble truth is the noble truth of the origination of stress. So these are truths that we are to develop an experiential understanding of, not just a conceptual one. Everybody can, can intellectualize stress and suffering. We all know what it means. And we can, I can tell you what the origination of stress and suffering is, and you can understand it intellectually, but that is of almost no value except in providing direction in developing understanding. The third noble truth is the noble truth of the cessation of stress. So why is the Buddha... It, it's a little bit of a... Um, a, a little bit of... Uh, not a confusion. I've always had a little bit of a questioning about the, noble tr the third noble truth, meaning understanding the noble truth of the cessation of stress. Because isn't that putting... In my mind, it was putting the cart before the horse. But of course, the Buddha is saying, stress is the problem. Understanding that in the origination of stress brings you the cessation of stress. But having the experience of that is the third noble truth. So we're here to actually have that experience. I'm, I'm making kind of an obvious point, but it is such an obvious point that it's, it's, almost, it's missed by almost everyone. This simple, single point is understanding stress and abandoning our own contributions to it by not taking things personal. 
the noble truth of the cessation of stress. Yes, Ron. It negates everything that modern Buddhism does. The third, the, uh, please say that again. It negates everything that modern Buddhism does. Modern Buddhism wants to put that cessation of stress off somewhere, either because ignore it. We're we're just too too good to uh, to take this for ourselves, and and we just want to make sure that everybody else does it, uh, or we. Or they'll they'll say that it's it's unattainable in in uh, at least not now you know yeah. a couple of thousand lifetimes maybe that's what um, I was told over and, and over you know consistently he keeps saying no this you know the cessation of stress is possible yeah. you you can do it and you can experience it you yeah. can know it I've done it I'm just a regular guy you can do it yeah and that's what the Buddhist is saying again there's so much here but he's also saying you can do this. But look what they've done. He's not saying that, that this is that this is something that you have to just worship me forever and all the all the future Buddhas for the zillion years in the future and all the eons and then some No, he says, do this. You're human beings. Understand what it means and you can awaken. Yes, David. But look what they've done. They, and I just know this personally because this is my first teaching with Jen. The third noble truth is 20, 20 words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 20 words and it's done. Yeah. So through the centuries modern Buddhists have brought it down to 20 words and that's it and then they have these long explanations of the first and the second and the fourth people don't want to hear the third noble truth because that's where the road meets the road yeah because it it points Mm -hmm. in a a direction that that anything lacking the eightfold path also lacks that direction so what we're saying here obviously is all modern Buddha should be put to death (laughs) (laughs) Of course, all that we're saying is that there is a distinct difference between what we practice and what other Buddhists practice. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I hardly ever call my saga. That's just a joke. I think only a few of them should be put to death as an example. John, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Come on. I, of course, I'm just kidding. The, um... But it also puts this responsibility on you. Right? Yes, yeah. as, that's the, that, this, that is the this point. This is your job. Yeah, we we are to do this, and it's, we can't we can't blame anybody else. You know, it's it's if if we're having difficulty with the Dhamma, all that that means is we need to practice a little bit more. And, it, and again, it means we should be very gentle with ourselves. Don't judge ourselves harshly. Don't judge other people harshly, especially modern Buddhism. Buddha, Buddha, modern Buddhism. <laughs> Uh, but this is our practice. And again, the Buddha was so clear over and over again as I was reading the suttas and starting to understand them. That's the one thing that struck me. The Buddha kept saying, just do this. And up until then, I had spent 20 years scattering my mind everywhere, everywhere. And it took a while to bring it back into just this. Mm-hmm. But it is just this. And I'm here, we are here to, to, to have the experience of the cessation of stress. And then the Buddha says, he doesn't leave us there and says, go figure it out on your own. He even gives us the most important thing, how to do it. The noble truth of the Eightfold Path of Practice that leads directly to the cessation of stress. And then he says, friends, in order to do that, my words, associate with wise disciples such as Sariputta and Moggallana. Sariputta and Moggallana are well-trained. They're focused. They're wise. And they're also sympathetic to those developing a life integrated with the Eightfold Path. That's usually 
in the translations that's usually written as uh, the holy life. But again, we're not talking about religion and holy has a religious connotation when really all it means is something that is holistic. And in this case, it's wholly integrated with the Eightfold Path. The Buddha says, Saraputta is like a mother giving birth and Moggallana is like the nurse that attends to the baby. So they, they both have different ways of approaching the Dhamma. And as it turned out over time, over the 45 years of the Buddha's life, the Buddha would call on Saraputta and Moggallana in different ways and to, de- to teach different um, nuanced views of the Dhamma because he knew they were um, particularly, um, I'm going to say well-versed, but um, well-inclined toward teaching something very specific. Uh, and Saraputta was called on often, Moggallana less so, because the Buddha also understood that Moggallana, like many practitioners, um, enjoyed their seclusion. And so Moggallana, more so than Saraputta, would stay away from the world. But when it was time, the Buddha would call Moggallana and says, time to teach. The Buddha says, Saraputta trains others in developing the Dhamma, Moggallana to the highest culmination. Saraputta is able to declare, teach, describe, set forth, reveal, explain, and make plain the Four Noble Truths in detail. That is primarily the... Um, the resulting characteristic of our Dhamma teachers. They can do just this. They can declare, teach, describe, set forth, reveal, explain, and make plain the Four Noble Truths. Um, and I think they would all agree that that's what their training was geared towards that. Really that one thing, even though there was a lot to it. Having said these words, the Buddha left for the days abiding. Sariputta then addressed those gathered. And he reiterates what the Buddha said. Friends, it was here that the Tathagata, the Buddha, set in motion the unexcelled wheel of Dhamma. There's nothing like it in the world. The Dhamma cannot be corrupted by any Brahman, Deva, Mara, Brahma, or anyone in the entire world. No one can corrupt the revelation, the declaration, the description, the structure, the explanation, and the clear and direct teaching of Four Noble Truths. So everything that we're teaching is teaching Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth is a noble truth of stress and suffering. I just went through this, so I'm not going to do it again. Friends, what is a noble truth of stress and suffering? So nothing is left up to speculation, even stress. So the first noble truth of stress is birth is stressful. The very first one. Having a birth, having a human life is stressful. Does everybody get it? Because that's the great secret or the great mystery. It's the thing that we don't want to understand. It's the thing that we want to ignore. It's the thing that we think we can manage rather than understand. And dukkha cannot be managed. But it can be understood. Birth is stressful. And again, as I go through these, ask yourself, has any one of these not been stressful? And you can kind of, don't spend too much time dwelling on it, because you'll miss my brilliant teaching. Ask yourself, did you ever take any one of these things stressful? Birth is stressful. Sickness is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Do you ever worry about death? you ever hope it wouldn't happen? Sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair, they're all stressful. I always took sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair stressful. <clears throat> and I never knew I was doing it. And I never knew I was increasing 
the inherent stress in life by doing so, by taking it personal. Not getting what is desired is stressful. I thought my whole life was about getting what I desired. Receiving what is undesired is stressful. And the other half of that was making sure that nothing ever bad happened to Johnny. And of course it did. Over and over and over again. Mostly in my thoughts, but sometimes in things that happened to me. And I couldn't understand, what the hell is going on here? Why can't I get what I want? Why do bad things keep happening to this perfect human being? Over and over again. And the Buddha described it here, in this last line. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. Form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness. This, this vehicle for living is stressful. I got it. Am I a human being? Well, let's look at it. What choice do I have? (laughs) I can either be this human being or not. That's the only choice I have. And I have a very powerful vehicle for not being a human being. I can think myself through an entire life out of a realizing what it means to be a human being. And to me, now, that is the saddest thing that I can imagine for any human being. Forget all the tragedies that happen to people and all the things that we take personal. There's a, there's a whole nation and a whole commonwealth that is grieving the loss of one person. And rightly say, I'm not making a political comment. I understand that. We should understand that. Why do we do it? In some ways, it's a form of respect. And it's, a, it's a, a sane way, a healthy way of living in the world. But we take it, like everything else, too far. And we take it way too far. And we say that it shouldn't happen. Or we have to find blame for it. And we even have to create scenarios because we don't understand where people go. And because we love them, we say they go to a place where we can find them again. An identifiable place. It's, a, it's amazing what human beings can, can develop in their own minds to distract themselves from the, the immediate fact of this is life. Right here, right now. Ideas come and go. People come and go. Truisms come and go. The sky is blue. There's four noble truths that persist. And what is birth? Whatever takes birth, the descent, the coming to be, the coming forth, the arising of the five clinging aggregates, the fabrication of sensuous realms of divine beings. Think about that. What what is the Buddha saying? Just as our time, during the Buddhist time, we were so enamored with gods and goddesses and divas and, and the, the, the nature realms and the diva realms and the, and the snake realms, the garjana, realms after realms after realms, the fabrication of the sensuous realms of diverse beings, wherever we can, we can, uh, we can um, imagine ourselves, the Dhamma can reach us. This is called birth. 
if I just meditate long enough and hard enough, at some point, I'll understand, I'll gain awakening. I just gave birth to another moment rooted in ignorance, isn't it? Or if I just follow this one teacher with great devotion and maybe great tithing and other things, then I'm good to go. What did I just do? I just gave birth to another ignorant idea that's only going to cause me stress and suffering. Or in this moment, I realize that next month's rather stressful. And if I can just get a big, giant pile of gold that no one can ever touch, then I'll be good to go. And I've just introduced another moment of stress in my life, haven't I? I've just given birth to another moment rooted in stress. And what is aging? Aging is decrepitude. It's brokenness, graying, wrinkling, the decline of the life force, diminishing of the mental faculties, the the, the diminishing of mental faculties of diverse beings. This is called aging. Again, why is the Buddha teaching this? In fact, have you ever heard anybody teach that? Did Did anybody in any of your, from kindergarten all through maybe university, did anybody say, guess what? you're going to get old and die. And it's going to be characterized by decrepitude and brokenness and a declining of the mental faculties. But it's so important to understand it, isn't it? Not to dwell on how awful I am and what's going to come of me. To recognize this is what's going to occur as a consequence of human life. I can't do anything about it. It's not even, well, I better make the best of it because that's kind of a grudging acceptance, isn't it? It's simply to recognize that when I'm 14, 24, 54, what did I just turn? 40, 67, (laughs) there are consequences to this moment. Get over it. And if you're feeling a little down about your physical or mental condition, realize how fortunate you are to have this moment, period. And what is death? Imagine that that one awakened human being had to teach this to other human beings, and yet it's such a relevant teaching. Have you ever taken your own death personally? Don't. What is death? Or others' deaths, personally. What is death? Death is a passing away, the breaking up, the disappearance, the completion of time. This is it. Again, the Buddha's not talking about the completion of time for the universe, is he? Because he's not teaching universal truths, he's teaching human truths. Four noble human truths. The completion of time. That's it. Whenever it ends, it ends. The casting off of the body, the interruption of life faculty, and the dissolution of the five clinging aggregates of diverse beings. The dissolution, it's done. This is called death. Again, it took an awakened human being to be this blunt. And I noticed it seems very quiet in this room. Because we're contemplating something that we don't want to contemplate. But we're also contemplating in a way that kind of reveals what it is, isn't it? And it may be it reveals in an um, intuitive way what it is. It's a quieting down at least, isn't it? 
And we should be quiet when we're considering these things. We should begin to quiet down because we should take them seriously, but we should not take them personally. Does everybody see the difference? And what is sorrow? Just so we understand what we put ourselves through. Sorrow is sadness. This suffering of misfortune, being touched by pain. This is called sorrow. The suffering of misfortune is called pain. So the Buddha knows that there's going to be two-pound safes falling on our head, our head as we go through life, that we'll be able to feel it's a stupid analogy, wasn't it? There's going to be stressors in life. There's going to be physical pain in life. But we only compound it when we see it as misfortune. The suffering of misfortune, being touched by pain, this is called sorrow. It's not all the other sorrows that the Buddha, the Buddha could have mentioned. The loss of a child, the loss of a parent, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a dog, the loss of a job, the loss, the loss, the loss not getting to play center field for the Yankees? No. He said, thinking about not playing center field for the Yankees and feeling sorrow and regret about that, that is the cause of pain. That's misfortune. Do you see? It's my thinking that causes misfortune. It's not the occurrence. The occurrence is just an occurrence. It's part of sickness, aging, and death and everything else that comes with that. This is called sorrow. And what is regret? Regret is the grieving, the crying, the weeping, the wailing. In the Loka Sutta, the Buddha says only fools grieve. And of course it's true. And he's not talking about the grieving the loss of a loved one. But if you're still grieving the loss of a loved one 10 years later, how do you describe that person? That's foolish, isn't it? And it might sound like a harsh term, but it just gets to the point as a Dhamma practitioner. Regret is the grieving, the crying, the weeping, the wailing. The regret of suffering from misfortune of being touched by pain. This is called regret. So I, fall, I first fall into sorrow and then I continue it with, this shouldn't have happened to me. What? The sorrow that I created in the first place. It, the, the, what occurred is what occurred. It has nothing to do with me. But then I get sorrowful. And then I, I decide, well, I really like this sorrowful feeling, so let me regret the feeling? Let me lock it in? And yet, we all do it. I did it. And I couldn't understand why I did it. I couldn't understand that I was doing it. And I couldn't understand that I was making myself feel worse and worse and worse. And I couldn't understand that all the coping mechanisms that I came up with, mostly drugs and alcohol and anger, and seeking mystical experiences to fix this broken self never work. It just resolved in regret, ongoing regret. And what is pain? Pain is bodily pain, bodily discomfort, pain or discomfort from bodily contact. This is called pain. And what is distress? Now we're taking pain to the mental level. What is distress? Distress is mental pain and mental discomfort, pain or discomfort from mental contact. This is called distress. Nothing, um, we don't have to go through 100 years of therapy in order to understand. I'm, I'm not putting down therapy at all. 
It saves a lot of people's lives. I gotta be careful because I'm, I'm gonna get somebody's <clears throat> gonna yell at me for that. But what we're talking about is understanding the Dhammic resolution for mental distress. And it's not deep analysis. It's not um, it's not figuring out where this came from, where that came from. It's not trying to find blame or for blaming yourself. It's just recognizing this mental distress came from contact, uninformed, ignorant contact. Stop it there. Because if you can stop it there, then you can resolve it by, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. As soon as I fall into labeling or trying to describe or analyze in the hopes of avoiding stress, what am I doing? Eye making, ongoing eye making. I am saying, this is me, this is mine. And it's obvious, isn't it? As soon as I decide that I have to resolve this issue by brute force or mental brute force, it's obvious that's eye making. And you can feel the tension in it, in it, isn't it? Or I can simply be at peace with what's occurring. Why? Because I understand. It's what's occurring. And when a stressful moment arises, this is stress. This is the origination of stress. <clears throat> this is the cessation of stress. And I found that cessation of stress through the Eightfold Path. And what is despair? Despair is despondency and desperation of anyone suffering from misfortune or touched by a painful thing physical or mental pain. This is called despair. And what is, what is the stress of not getting what is desired in those beings subject to birth? Meaning, everybody who has a human life. The wish arises, may I not be subject to birth? Which means, anything. When, whenever I'm saying, I don't want this to happen, I don't want this in my life, I'm saying, I don't want this life. And that's why stress is so physically debilitating. Because in my mind, I'm denying this moment in my life. And isn't it interesting that in the past 25 or so years, Dr. Kevin can back me up on this, or not, you, can, <laughs> you don't have to agree with me, that we're finding in medicine that stress is one of the biggest causes of physical illness. Uh, yes or no, Dr. Kevin? A reasonable statement? Yes. <laughs> and it proves yes. again that I'm the world's greatest meditation teacher because I also is as smart as a doctor. Uh. Just, just prove, thank, you, thank you, Kevin. <laughs> and what is the stress of not getting what is desired? And those being subject, subject to birth, the wish arises, may I not be subject to birth? May birth not come to me. May this moment not happen. Then the Buddha or Saraputta says, wishing does not bring cessation. <clears throat> All the wishing in the world, all the praying in the world. Praying is just a wish, isn't it? It's a strong wish, it's a structured wish, but a wish nevertheless. And I'm not talking about people that like to use prayer. Go ahead and use it. It's just not Dhamma practice. It's an aspect of wishing that won't get you to understanding. And that's, that's the, the thing that's so difficult to explain to anybody who, who is not a practitioner. It's the wishing that gets you into trouble. Yes, and what is one of the, the most prevalent myths throughout time and throughout cultures? And it has slightly different variations. Does anyone know what it is? Aladdin and the Golden Lamp. Yeah. We get three wishes. And there's different, I, mean, you can, I won't go through it right here, but I, I, every culture has a golden lamp in it. 
because that's what we, that's the escape. If I can just get blessed by this one thing or what, or this one entity or this one idea, or if I could just find that lamp, wham, and I got it. The golden lamp is within us. Mm-hmm. Where else would it be but right in front of us? Actually, Where else things. could the could the um, <laughs> could the culmination of life be? Where? But right here. How else could it be anywhere else? I excuse me for getting excited, but this is exciting to me. It's not center field for the Yankees. It's not on the world's greatest carousel. I'm, I'm almost coming to tears because it's so friggin' on it right, right here. Where else could it be? Where's the golden lamp? It's in my mind. It's in my understanding. It's in this opportunity that I have in this moment to recognize this is not me, this is not mine, this is not <clears throat> Ron, please. Yeah. Now it also, but the myth also says rightly that, you know, what happens when when the gold lamp is found? <coughs> disaster strikes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Again, when you, when you think you, you have found the way to, to come have your wishes come true. You finally realize, no, this is not the way. Yeah, yeah, and it and it happens to to everyone. Some people learn it enough that they get to something like this, and then those with a little dust in their eyes can gain this understanding. Again, getting back to all this, the Buddha is also declaring that the troubles in the world will always be in the world, meaning, and he never made generational predictions. He just said. This plane of existence is characterized by these four noble truths. So we can, um, as Dharma practitioners, we can understand that even scientific descriptions of evolution are only describing something that is within dukkha. And so even some assumptions that we make, such as uh, uh, species evolution, as Dharma practitioners, we understand that even evolution is rooted in Four Noble Truths. And again, when I look out on the world, as a Buddha did, um, and I think in my life, we made such incredible technological changes. I mean, I didn't have a TV in my house when I was first born. Um, and I still have one, but I hardly use it. Um, we had, I think we had one phone. You know, th- th- these are the kind of things. So now... Um, we have instant communication. We have this. We, we've been to the moon. Um, we might be going to Mars soon. Again, great technological advances, and yet there still hasn't been one day in my sixty-seven years where we haven't had structured wars, meaning an organized group of people thinking it was right to kill another organized group of people. Again, in the world today, without getting into the politics, violence is out of control everywhere. Everywhere. It's worse than it's been in the last year, two years, five years, hundred years. We're killing ourselves in a, um, in, a, in, a, in a pandemic rate. We really are. We're, we're killing ourselves not just physically, one human on another, but through drugs and alcohol on a pandemic rate. More people die of drugs and alcohol. More people die of fentanyl in a year that ever died from the pandemic, I think. I gotta look at that statistic, but it's pretty. There's a lot of people, yeah, yeah. and yeah, you're right. It's not. There's more people. 
But the point I'm making is the Buddha was right, at least up until today. And nothing is likely to change. So what is the point? Is the point for us to live our whole life to stop Zuka? D- Zuka. Duka? <laughs> Where did Zuka come from? That's so cool. I like that. I do. It's a nice, it's a good yeah. idea. We'll use it. So we'll use yeah. Zuka somehow. Thinking of stuffed peppers. Ah, yes. The, ah, the Zuka of not having a stuffed pepper right now. Yeah. Um, and yet here we are. Again, brilliant minds. We've all been trying to figure out. We've had great philosophies going back you know, to, the, to the Greeks and the Romans. And, and I'm sure we had philosophers way before that. All proclaiming that they had an understanding of where we're going and how to bring peace. We've had great um, uh, legal systems trying to establish peace. And we haven't been able to do it, have we? Why? Because we're lacking understanding. We keep looking for resolution outside of the issue. And what is the stress of not getting what is desired and those being subject to birth the wish this the wish arises, may I not be subject to birth, may birth not come to me. What are we what are we doing with legislation? And I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. We we would have eliminated ourselves if we didn't have laws. But what are we doing with laws? We're trying to manage the things that we're doing with each other to each other by establishing a structure and a um a means to apply that structure, meaning, you know, the courts and jails, etc. Wishing does not bring cessation. This is the stress of not getting what is desired. We, since the beginning of time, we've been we've been desiring peace and calm and prosperity. We've been trying to legalize it. We haven't figured it out yet. Furthermore. In an uninformed human being, subject to birth, sickness, aging, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair, the wish, wish arises, oh, may I not be subject to birth, sickness, aging, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. Has anyone ever felt that? That's taking it personal. May these things not befall me. Saraputta says, these things are not avoided by wishing. So why bother with it? But again, I, I wished most of my life away until I came to this. Wishing that I'd get something and wishing that I'd not get something. Wishing, wishing, wishing. And all those wishes, it didn't avoid one of those things. This is the stress of not getting what is desired. So stop that type of desire. Strive only for understanding. The result, the result of continued grasping after... Con- I'm sorry, the result of continued grasping after, continued establishment of a fabricated view of self, clinging to any impermanent phenomena, including the fabricated phenomena of external realms, and the fabricated belief of salvific intervention of beings from external imaginary realms is what is referred to here. These are my words, my commentary, by the way. Sorry I didn't say that. Wishing to avoid any experience that is determined by simply having a human life is rooted in self-referential wrong views and always results in continued distraction and continued stress and suffering. Saraputta continues. And what are the five clinging aggregates? The clinging to form aggregate, the clinging to feeling aggregate, the clinging to perception aggregate, the clinging to fabrication aggregate, and the clinging to consciousness aggregate. So clinging implies that I've established a self in these disparate aggregates and they are now me. 
These are the five clinging aggregates that continue stress. So once we stop clinging to the form aggregate, identifying as this is me, once I stop clinging to my feelings as defining me, how I feel in this moment, and how often do we define our days by how we feel throughout the day, or if we had a bad 10 minutes, that resulted in, ah, I had a bad day. Simply based on how we feel. Which is kind of foolish, isn't it? Because as we know as human beings, feelings ever always change, don't they? And if I have a feeling that I'd rather not have right now, all I have to do is wait. I don't have to do anything about it. I don't have to buy anything or go anywhere or be with anybody. All I have to do is take a breath or two, and I know it will change. And also, as I deepen my concentration, I might recognize that this feeling is reflecting what is appropriate for me to feel in this moment rather than want it to be any different. And so in that way, in, that, in this way, when sadness is appropriate in the moment, we'll be able to feel deep sadness without the need for it to be any other, without the need to color it any other way. Uh, John? Please, Laura. When you were saying can we, establishing ourselves in the five clinging aggregates, do you, is that something different than identifying, self-identifying, or what's the difference, the nuance there? Thank you. Um, there really isn't, and so we are clinging to these things, we are, and we're using that to self-establish ourselves in this form. Beginning with that. So this is me. And it's not, it, it, it's a, it seems like a little bit of sleight of hand to, to say, well, this is not me. But what we're referring to is, is my fabricated view of this physical being as me as it projects to the world. Meaning that it should have beautiful flowing hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know what I mean? And, and, and being over-concerned, oh, my shirt is pressed. And, you know, all those kind of things that we go out of the house worrying that people yeah. might notice about me becomes ridiculously overwhelming and then distracting. But of course, it's a good idea when you leave the house to, to look in the mirror and make sure that your hair is wonderfully flowing. You know, you, know, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. To not self-identify with this form, but take responsibility for the form. Right. There's a significant yeah. difference. Right? Did, did I ask, it, answer your is question? It weird to say or establishing yourself in someone else's, not someone else's form, but someone else's, I mean perceptions or whatever fabrications that brings about or you know I don't know I was just thinking about like how it can bring so much stress when you're trying to yeah establish yourself and someone else's like fabricated realm or whatever and it's that yeah and that's your fabrication of their fabrication yeah that's what I'm getting at yeah, yeah. even when you're trying to take responsibility for instance you're trying to take responsibility for the health of your parents. Mm-hmm. You're already projecting part of your identity there. This yeah. is my responsibility. Right. You know, right. why don't they listen to me? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Ron knows. Of course they should because because they're old and stupid and I Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and you have the professional well, yeah, it is. It's yeah. such a, and also so, yeah. that see how that you know, See yeah. how that's a fabrication. Yeah, yeah. there's a fabrication. Yeah. Well, and even even in seeing, we, we create a, a a collective fabrication of we, how we think the world is seeing us too, and that becomes a reality that is that has no basis at all in reality. It's, it simply doesn't. It, and the stress is for us is maintaining it. There's no there's no inherent stress in the world for me living a fabricated self instead of except what it brings in the world. You know, the 
no matter how fabricated a John Haspel I present to the world, it's still nothing. Yeah. You know, it could it could be the most. It it could be a a um, again just to use an I don't I won't use that example. It's hard to think of someone else though. Mm-hmm. Eh, it, it's it's not that important. <sighs> Wise restraint. Sometimes it's tough. <laughs> Nice job. And so when we have, when we fabricate this self through self-identification, we fabricate every self and every realm. And so we can't see anything based in reality, including parents or uh, the collective fabrication we apply to society, even though we might be right. Why? Because my right view is still tinged or colored by my own fabrication of what needs to be done. So I might be right. Uh, it, my uncle, Uncle Jaime, uh, he was like a second father to me. He smoked himself to death. Yeah. And we knew he had emphysema. He was diagnosed with emphysema, but he could never stop smoking. He just couldn't. And he wanted to, but the poor man was incapable of letting go of it. Mm-hmm. And he, literally to the day he died, he smoked himself. He kept kept smoking and kept smoking. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing him um, at a hospital in Tom's River. I knew that that was the last time. And in his hospital bed, I was begging him to stop smoking. I couldn't just be with good old Uncle Jaime. And he was a great guy. Hi, tears. Hi, you got to stop smoking. What is he going to do? Live another three minutes? But because of my own fabrication of how he should be, I lost that moment with with good old Uncle Jaime. But it's difficult because he was, not that we should control his actions, but he was also in a state of fabrication in a way. I mean, believing oh, yeah. that. The fabrication that I thought he should be able to stop smoking just like that. Because yeah. I thought he should. And again, everybody else around him. And it, then that wasn't even the issue, was it? It was, this man lived the life that he wanted to live in. It was actually a pretty interesting and good life. Mm-hmm. And he actually died the way he wanted to die. I mean, he did. He, mm-hmm. he, he wanted to smoke himself to death, and he did. Mm-hmm. And no one, including, you know, a loving nephew, should have denied him that. In all my right thinking. Would anybody say that a nephew shouldn't want their uncle to stop smoking when he's got emphysema? Yeah. But should you walk around thinking that he should be different? No. Because it changed, it, it colored my relationship with good old Uncle Tiny. <laughs> Anyway, so that that's that. And then the same is true about clinging to a feeling, the same thing. And it might be the feeling that, oh, Uncle High is going to die. He's got to stop dying. Right. Clinging to the perception aggregate that I, am, I can do something about it or I should be doing something about it or it's my duty. Mm-hmm. Or the, fa- the, 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 the fabrication of it, clinging to that fabrication that is now solidified in my mind. And how is it portrayed? Clinging to consciousness. And what is it? What is this whole five clinging aggregates? Thank you for bringing it up because it really is describing it in a great way. It's just a thought. Mm. It's no more than one thought. It seems like our whole world. It seems like all of me. And in that way, it seems like the universe, doesn't it? When we think of ourselves in that way. But it's just an idea. And it's a wrong idea. It's rooted in ignorance. But I have a way of understanding it, of changing that wrong idea or wrong view, this is me, to a right view. This is not me. And it's just that. And as I can condition my thoughts away 
from this is me and condition them towards this is not me, right? This is a habitual practice in that way. The closer I am to abandoning all ignorance and all stress. Because how does it arise and how do I notice it? In stress. How did the Buddha teach in the Aryapariyasana Sutta? It is within the environment of stress that he recognized and abandoned stress as Ram taught last week so eloquently. It is in that feedback loop that I recognize it, stop it, interrupt it, and awaken right here, right now. Thank you, Lord. That was a great question. These are the five clinging aggregates that continue stress. Once these aggregates are understood and abandoned or disbanded or disentangled, this is an awakened human being. There's nothing left for ignorance to lodge. Saraputta continues, This, friends, is the noble truth of stress. If I should make this a two-parter. Um, does anybody have to, it's, it's 20 to 10, does anybody have to leave in the last, in the next 40 minutes? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let me hold on one second. I just want to see. I'm not quite sure where I am here. All right, this is going to be a two-parter, I think. <laughs> this is a good place to stop. I wasn't going to make this a two-parter, but we had a great discussion already, and we're stopping right at and what is the noble truth of the origination of stress? Where does eye making begin? So that's a mm-hmm. a good place to continue this on, on Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. So uh, David is going to continue this on Tuesday because uh, I'll be out with... Uh, did you already prepare for the Yeah. The next one, actually. Yeah. You did already? So he's going to do both. We're, yeah. Oops. David was all ready to, to do the Maga Vibhanga Sutta on, on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, if you want it, to... It's up to you. We can talk about it. If you want to teach Saturday, uh, Tuesday and Saturday, please please do so. Yeah, uh, but anyway, so we're going to... We'll continue this on uh, uh, this... this uh, Sakavabhanga Sutta on Tuesday with David's great teaching. So uh, let's go around the room um, and I'd like to hear what you all have to say. And let's start with Mary. <clears throat> Hello, Mary. Hello, Mary. Can you hear me? Ah, there you are. You sound a little muted, though. Sounds far away. Yeah, you, you, Mary, you sound yes. quite muted. You're not, you're not coming through clearly. All right, well, skip me and. You're okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now we go ahead. Yeah, just uh, uh, speak loudly as loud as you can, without screaming. Go ahead, Mary. Oh, thank you. Can I say no? Thank you. Yeah, you can. (laughs) Thank you, Mary. Hello, Sammy. I know what it is. I got the volume turned down. I was going to say. Mary, I'm sorry. I had the volume turned down. Would you like to... Can you hear me now? What? (laughs) I hear you fine. I was saying that I like what Laura said because I think... As you um, continue your practice, it's in the nuances that the learning occurs and understanding the difference between 
it's not that you want your behavior or your awareness to take you so that people or anybody in your environment doesn't even recognize your behavior. Yeah. It's, um, it's all internal in that you no longer identify with it. So you might still dress appropriately for the work environment you're going in because you don't want to, you, you don't want all of a sudden dress uh, overly casual in an environment that isn't that way and then draw all this attention to yourself. What's changed? Oh, well, because I don't give a shit about dressing appropriately for work anymore, right? That's not what it is. And it's not about not caring. It's just not identifying, you know, mm-hmm. like I am now wearing a suit to work, not because a suit makes me somebody else and self-important, but because it's, you know, I don't know, maybe that's a silly example. No, it, it's, it's societally appropriate. Workplace, then it's appropriate to wear it, right? Yeah. And, and, and so those are just like subtle things that sometimes I think people think, um, well, I'm not going to identify that, so I'm going to buck the system or whatever, right? I'm not a part of that, right? Yeah. That's not always, that's not what I don't think what this is saying that you, you don't all of a sudden become a different person, you don't dress differently, you're not aloof, you're not, um, you're still the same person. It's internal and how you're identifying with that look in the mirror on your way out to work or, uh, you know, making sure your fingernails are clean or whatever, you know, you're not identifying it, but it's appropriate. Uh, for the different environments you're in. So you have, you know, your work environments, your family environments, your different friend environments, whatever they are, we navigate through them in different ways. We don't become stoic. Uh, We become maybe more comfortable and more accessible to other people because we're not identifying with maybe things we were, masks or shields, you know, mental masks, mental shields, as we navigated those spaces. And I think that's important to remember, because I think it would be easy to think that um, studying this um, does mean you disattach, you, um, that you change somehow to the people in your lives. And I think that would be, um, you know, that could have its own consequences yeah. uh, that are in contrast to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So I think it's an important question that she asked, as you noted, John. So thank you, Laura. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mary. Yeah, it, 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 the, um, I, I, as me as a dollar practitioner, I'm, I'm really doing the only thing I can do and live my life the only way that I think is a reasonable way to live. And it's not important to me. I don't have to carry a sign. You know, I, have to, I don't have to dress a certain way or carry a sign to make people, to insist that people know who I am or that what I'm about. Um, again, that's the essence of eye making. But and the and the what you talked about, Mary, to 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 not dress a certain way just because you don't want to, because you don't want to look like everyone else, is the essence of eye making. Uh, even even more so. You know, but again, it's it's subtle. You know, it, it's if I if I work in an environment where men were supposed to wear suits, that was the what the company was about. I'd wear a suit, um, but I I don't think I would worry at night 
what suit I'm going to wear the next day. You know, you understand what I'm saying? It's not, right. so it's just what's or, appropriate. And or again, navigating in your community and thinking that you're yeah. more important because you're wearing a suit or because of what you do for a living or what your title is or whatever. Like this practice just helps you say, this is what I do for a living. It's not who I am. It's not going to make a hill of beans at the end of the day. And, um, but can I bring greater um, kindness or patience or, you know, loving kindness into my work because of this practice? And that maybe in that subtlety, somebody might notice, oh, you know, what's going on with Mary over there? But it should be very, very subtle. It shouldn't be like, you know, as if I've become this whole different person because then I'm identifying with being, oh, I'm now discovered loving kindness and I am now the world's greatest manager, you know? Yep. Um, so it's, it, it, I think that's just good advice that it's very subtle. So whether you're dealing with a difficult family situation or you've taken on the burdens of your family, the taking off of the burdens of your family, it should be internal and it, it, it might show up in the frequency that you visit your family or I don't know, I'm making up a situation, but it should just be subtle because then the visit with your family in the difficult situation should just become easier because you're no longer carrying the burden of the family, but your care and concern and, and their access to you is still there. Yeah, I think everybody here would, would say that their Dhamma practice has brought more common peace in their relationships as well within their families. Would anybody say not? That that oh, didn't happen? Yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, not always recognized. No, but you but you feel it. Yeah. And I, and like that that is kind of the point that we're not necessarily um I for about eight minutes I protested the Vietnam War and I was very you know, I was really into it. Probably almost as much so as I'm into this. But and most people knew it, you know. But when I walk out of here nobody knows what I do and what I'm about. Mm-hmm. And I don't you know, because I don't I don't care. I I really don't. Um, I have my own views about things, and sometimes people hear them. But um, you know that that the the living in the world part is just living in the world. It, you know, it's not a big deal. So why shouldn't I be? If if my mind is calm, I should be a calming presence to those around me as well. And if it's not, I probably will be at least in a subtle level, maybe some not so subtle, an agitation to others around me. Um, and that's that's kind of the choice we have too. But uh, that's what we're doing too to resolve that issue. Thank you, Mary. Hello, Sammy. Hi, John. Uh, this is great, perfect timing for where I am and truth, yeah. happiness, and everything um, with the four double truths and the five clinging aggregates. A lot um, that I'm reflecting on right now is really how to put this into practice. That you know in future right and absorbing it so i I really appreciate the lessons today and as always great job thank you thank you sammy for joining us today yeah it's interesting how that worked out um do you do you see that um that the dhamma is to be experienced and it's really not about anything else yeah i think you know just continuing focusing the concentration and how that the fact that just sitting and doing this you know, everything that you say is starting to really come to life and um, it's life changing. It's wonderful. 
Yeah, it, it, it's just like that, isn't it? And I get so excited when I hear somebody say that, that it comes to life because that's just it. Once you experience it, you know, you're, you're good to go. So I'm glad to hear that, Sammy. <laughs> say hello to that teacher of yours when you see him too. I will, I will. Thanks, Sammy. Thank Dr. Kevin, how are you? I'm good, Darren. Thank you for the teaching. It's a really interesting discussion, and um, I don't have too much to add. It is, you know, what um, Sammy was saying, really just like a hip mistake. It's like come and see for yourself uh, as we do this, and, and it's interesting that we're all in such advanced training that it just seems that we uh, understand that so far. So it's a great thing, and thank you. It's taken me many years <laughs> to get there. Um, and then I, as a further added distraction, I, I'm not going to be around maybe for the next three weeks. I'm taking a trip to France. Oh, yeah. So um, I'll try to join if I can. But, um, yeah, try to join just once. That would be very cool for us to, to be with you when you're in France. <clears throat> yeah, I'll try to. Yeah. Maybe, I, maybe I might do better on a Thursday afternoon than on a Saturday. But, you know, we'll have to stay. All right, well, so, I hope so. Um, I'll do what I can, but I'll be, you know, editing and reading and listening to talks anyway while I'm there. And sending some pictures, please? I will, Good. yeah. I, I, I okay. live vicariously through most of my students, so. Thank you Especially very much. those that travel. Thank you, Kevin. Dama, teacher Tom, how are you? On the beach. Yeah. Um, not... Not a, not exactly tropical conditions here anymore, but uh, never mind. So it's nice. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't have a lot to add. Um, obviously, just enjoyed enjoyed um, listening to the teachings and the chance to reflect. I think just to pick up very quickly on yeah, what Mary, you and Mary were discussing just a moment ago. I think when it comes to your interpersonal relation, relationships, that idea that the change that we experience can be quite subtle and internal, you know, rather than sort of making a big song and dance about it, because then it just becomes something that you're projecting to people, right? Like, hey, look at me, I've, I'm like this now, or I do this now, but rather just focus on that internal sort of transformation and, and be able to confront situations with, particularly in relationships or with family, through a different lens. And I think that's, that's just the aspect of it, which is, um, which is where we should be sort of concentrating our efforts. Um, yeah. So anyway, that was just something that resonated with me. I, I took lots of notes um, from the rest of the suitor, but, but I, I think a lot of it has already been discussed and said. So um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. It just gets deeper and deeper too, as you hear these things and you apply them in, uh, in ways you didn't know you could. Hello, Adam. Good morning, John. Uh, I think that it's so useful to have such a detailed breakdown of the nature of dukkha that you they just, just read through here. Um, it's uh, great to be able to understand that, all the different directions it comes from. And I really um, am fascinated by what Laura is saying about this the sense of um, you, know, you sort of create 
your own version of yourself that you want to put out there in the world. And then you worry about what other people are thinking about that. Yeah. You know, sort of this, this compounding effect yeah. of, um, you know, clinging to these things that uh, are entirely manufactured. Um, which is always a, a trouble of mine. And, you know, since uh, starting to understand the Dhamma, it's been so much easier to sort of catch myself before I start doing that again. Yeah. So anyway, thank you both. Yeah, thank you, Adam. And that, again, that's worth the price of admission. It's just, just, you know, be who you are. But that's, people have been saying that for, forever, but now we know how to do it, you know, to be who we are, which is being nothing. Just mm-hmm. Being what's, what's arising. Thank you, Adam. What's arising, Laura? Well, so we were saying, well, the Buddha says, in short, the five clinging aggregates are suffering. And I was thinking about that. And then you said something that was like a little mini breakthrough and I wanted to just clarify you said I think the five clinging aggregates are just one thought right? Yeah. and I guess does that mean I mean they're constantly changing because we tend to what causes us so much suffering I guess is that I put so much weight or meaning on these five clinging aggregates in my life mm-hmm. and Yet, if you think about it in the way you describe, you know, based on the Buddha's teachings, that, well, it's just one passing thought, then it carries less, you, I guess you really see how... I don't mean to interrupt you, Laura, but just, what did you just say? You said you put a lot of weight on the thought that you had. Right. You, you put a lot, you, that's a vested interest right. in what you are. You've created it. Right. So again, it's, it's like that beautiful it. pottery. I'm gonna be, Laura made these beautiful, mm-hmm. three beautiful bowls, really magnificent. Mm-hmm. But it's like that. It's hard to do something like that and not say, "This is me," isn't it? You know. Right. But but you, um, and you're 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 getting to the heart of the problem, and it's right here. It's really what 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 do I think of? The Dhamma teaches me that I can think about myself any way that I want. That's a great freedom that every human being has, and nobody should ever take away from them. Like, you should stop smoking, just as an example. Mm-hmm. But how does that apply to me? How do I get off my own back? You know, how do I leave myself alone and just in this moment? It's not, how do I do it tomorrow? How do I prepare myself to leave myself alone tomorrow? I do it right now. And in the next moment, mm-hmm. Uncle Hi, you got to stop smoking. Right. And then I might have Passing. three or four breaths. And I might be able to say in that moment, you know, Uncle Hai, you would you know, say the things that I wanted to say that I never did because of that, you know. Because we're present for this moment. Do you see? Yeah. You're present for who you, it, it's up to you who you bring into the world. That's not the way I want to say it. It is, though. Well, it is. You're bringing this, moment, you're bringing this moment into this world clouded by this misunderstanding of impermanence. So therefore, you're creating this thing that you are willing to defend and project out out to everyone. And the moment mm-hmm. you're gone, it's gone. It's just that mm-hmm. thought. It's gone. So all this this whole fabricated life that you've built and defended is simply gone. Yeah, and so it just and it, and just it only lived it. here. It's only there. It's not. It's not something that you know that we we have to. We have to now repair the ground that it was built on. It's just, there's nothing there. 
It's just an idea. So when I finally let go of the idea that I should, just because of living in the world, I should play center field for the Yankees. Once I let go of the thought, which was at that point a mental fabrication maintained in my consciousness, once I let go of that, well, once I do let go of that thought, <laughs> once I let go of the thought, it was, it was no longer causing me stress. But when, it, when I have, I mean, you might not even believe that I really felt that I should play center field for the Yankees. And, and when I finally realized that, you know, I think I was 5'8 at the time, probably 4'8 now. <laughs> uh, once I realized that, you know, 5'8 people that are slow afoot don't play center field for the Yankees. They just don't. But once I could accept that, which was a week ago, it's no longer it's no longer a stress. But it's with but it's like um, playing center field for the Yankees is all of our stressors. You know, the fact that I need to be just a little bit better at work so the boss notices me is is me creating stress. The idea that I do my best might get me noticed. You know, but but that's impersonal. Go and do my just go do my job. Again, just yeah. an, another example. Um, like David said, it's just gone. It, in that in that moment, the thought is gone. So this thing, this this construct, these five clinging aggregates, they're nothing. They're nothing, except what we make of them, which is everything, yeah. which always results in self-loathing because we know there's something wrong here. What is it? It's clinging to all these things. Thank yeah. you, Lord. Dhamma teacher Ram. Yeah. <clears throat> Just like uh, what in the Nagara Sutta, um, or in Dependent Origination, um, we get to see this relationship between the birth, you know, birth of the five clinging aggregates, and the suffering that it's the immediate result of that, and the and what we do. The becoming that's leads to this birth of the five clinging aggregates. Yeah, um, that just <clears throat> and it was just a you know because I've been I've been thinking about becoming a lot and, and writing about it and finding out what 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 and discussing it with every time that another. I did that it was like yeah and I also have to figure out what this what this birth is now because <laughs> uh, and then in teaching the Nagars who they all of a sudden be starting off with birth oh okay now I have to really you know, <laughs> find where that comes from and that's you know it's just the birth of the the birth of yeah. this of this entity that is experiencing suffering yeah mm -hmm. A profound understanding, but obvious once you see it. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, Ron and gave it's it. all there. It's mean, all. It, 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 you don't have to make it up. It, it's not such deep analysis as necessary. It's, it's right there. It's the birth. Yeah, what is birth? It's the arising of the five million hybrids. Are you speaking from your own experience, or is this just theoretical? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's the experience of teaching. Uh, yeah. You know, that was, uh, again, this is, for me, this is why I teach. Uh, yes, it's, it's nice to be able to, to make things clear for others, but in the, in the process, the process is making it clear for myself. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, I, I, Ram taught the Nagara Sutta last, what's today? 
Last Saturday. What is today? Where am I? Today's Saturday. He told on Tuesday. Last Tuesday. I'll see you, Adam. Uh, and the, uh, the recording is up. So if you want to just go to the Nagara Sutta or this structured study and you'll see, and you can hear Rob's talk. But I, please do so. It's just an outstanding talk on the Nagara Sutta. Thank you, Rob. Mm-hmm. Dhamma teacher, Jen. Good to have you back in house. Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, the five clinging aggregates arise and pass away on their own. And part of being a human is having to experience that. And the suffering that might arise from experiencing that. Because when the five cleaning aggregates arise, they distract us. We have to manage them. We have to figure them out. Um, We have to understand how, where they're coming from. Or try to. And that is distracting and tense and unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Always. And so the understanding is remembering that we can just let them go and allow them to pass away on their own. And continue to breathe and experience life as life occurs because they will continue to arise and pass away, and we can just watch them kind of go by like clouds. Or we can, you know, just try to do something about them, which is just causing suffering. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot that because I haven't been here. I don't know if you forgot it. You just it wasn't at the forefront. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. it. Yeah, thank you, Jen. Again, a, a great uh, explanation, uh, as you always do. You know, when we do... See you, Adam. See you, guys. Bye. Okay. When we... As teachers, when we do teach, it eventually gets to that. It really is just this one thing. But there's all kinds of ways of coming to it. And yeah. there's some basic understandings, like dependent origination mm. what we mean by birth and rebirth and mm-hmm. all those things but that's what class is like you kind of piece it all together thank you Jen. Mm-hmm. good to see you Dharma teacher David yeah. and the, way, the way Jen described it when you shift from just the intellectual to the experiencing it if you just simply intellectualize it it will come and go and you'll practice some versions of restraint and it will succeed and fail and that's the stress yeah but when you start experiencing the insights of impermanence that's when you see that gradual practice start taking hold when it no longer is anything but looks like restraint and I struggle sometimes with even wise restraint because it just becomes experiencing like Jen so expertly describes with mindfulness it Mm. just becomes a natural yeah yeah it's how you live your life calm way to live your life Mm. and you can't wrestle it down you can't Mm. do anything but to practice and 
to experience what impermanence is. Yeah. And what is that? What do you describe? A mature human being. Sure, human nothing, being. Nothing. You know, it is nothing yeah. special, but it's everything. But if you're experiencing that stress, that's when you have to really investigate, and you need that mindfulness to be able to yeah. say, what. What's happening? What part of eye making is taking place? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And start rooting those very nuanced levels of eye making. Because then you're not intellectualizing it. You're really just, that understanding is really the tool. It's interesting that that's what David is talking about is just what he's going to be teaching on Mm -hmm. Tuesday. Just Mm -hmm. that. Thank you, Dalla teacher. David? Um, I, I, I'm just... I've been teaching for... I, I, I keep coming up trying to figure out how many classes, but I think it's over 2,000. I've restored a lot of suttas, and it, it's still just astonishing. Maybe not astonishing is too powerful a word, but maybe not. Just, just how powerful this stuff really is. And maybe I shouldn't even call it stuff, but this Dhamma. Mm-hmm. It's just remarkable. I see such, such deep and profound changes in all of you and other, you know, all the other members of our Sangha. It, just, it keeps working and working at ever deeper levels. And it's, just, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to live. So that's all I can say. <laughs> Glad we found it. We're doing it. All right, we'll, we'll finish with Meta as we always do. Um, since I call it up. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, Those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision and being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class. Peace, everyone. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, 
and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.